the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. Amen. Many of you probably know that Luke's Gospel is actually the first volume of a two-volume work comprising the books of Luke and Acts. In his Gospel, Luke, just like Matthew and Mark and John, gives us his narrative of the life and the works and the teaching and the suffering and the dying and alleluia, alleluia, indeed, the rising from the dead of Jesus Christ, Son of Mary, Son of God. The Gospel of Luke ends the very same way the Luke's book of Acts begins, that being with Jesus' ascension into heaven on the 40th day of Easter, which is to say this coming Thursday, something to look forward to this week. Before he ascended, Jesus gave his disciples two things. The first thing being marching orders. You will be my witnesses, he said, in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. They had seen him. They had seen all that he had done. They knew who he was. Their purpose, he said, would be to launch a movement, a church, finally, through which the world would come to know. And in knowing would believe. And in believing would be saved. And in being saved would rise up to new life resurrected life, life in heaven beyond the stench even of death someday, but life also beyond the stench of things like hate and fear here and now on earth each and every day of their lives. And in rising to new life, all of that which is not life, that which is death, that which does stink because it is not of God, would by God at last be overcome the only way it truly can be, and that is by love. Obviously, very tall marching orders. Indeed, Jesus said those marching orders were actually too tall for them, way bigger than them. Thus, the second thing he gave them that day, the promise that what was too big for them wasn't too big for God at work through them. And so he said, don't start marching just yet. Wait, he said, until you are clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That would take place on the 50th day of Easter, Pentecost Day. That is to say, two weeks from today, 
something else to look forward to. Now, in a sort of peculiarity, I've always thought, of the church calendar, though Pentecost Sunday is yet to come, during this this pre-Pentecost Easter season, every year, our first lesson each Sunday of Easter is from the book of Acts, as Luke bears witness to the work of this Christian church that was birthed after Easter on Pentecost and exploded out into the world following Pentecost. The most immediate thing that I notice in those pre-Pentecost Easter stories is that the combination of Easter and Pentecost absolutely raised Jesus' first followers up to new life. Right here and right now, Luke lifts Peter up as the first case in point. When on Pentecost Sunday, this same man who had abandoned Jesus and then later three times denied that he even knew who Jesus was for fear of the people and for fear of the powers that be, now stood up to boldly preach to people and to power and to do so in the name of Jesus, he said. Whom, he said to them fearlessly, whom you killed but God raised up. So, he said to them, again fearlessly, repent. For died and risen, he is the Savior of sinners, he said. All sinners, even those whose sin was the sin of condemning him to a cross. Peter, raised up from the death and stench of his fear and raised up too, forgiven for the sins which his fear had sinned. Now, afraid no more, proclaimed the gospel, which is for the forgiveness and salvation of all sinners, including sinners whom we've previously known because of their sin and ours too, as our enemies. Which leads to the next thing to be noticed in the book of Acts, post-Pentecost, through the words and deeds of Christ's church risen to new life and spirit-infused walls. Walls between God and people and walls between people and people came tumbling down. And with them, laws, rules, even in some cases laws that were written right there in the Bible, but that too in some cases had done the building of the walls, Rules, laws came tumbling down too. And so, for example, right there in the Bible, there is a law that does say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as in do unto others as they have done unto you. But to those who had done unto Jesus what they had done, Peter now proclaimed not and a death for a death, but rather forgiveness and new life. And so, too, last week, in our reading from Acts, more walls and, and, and rules with them came tumbling down. As you may recall, Philip, Deacon Philip, as in a minister of word and service, didn't, didn't wait for a minister of word and sacrament when the Ethiopian eunuch he met asked to be baptized. He just up and baptized him, welcoming the eunuch into the kingdom and the community that Jesus did come to create. And in so doing, oh my goodness, the number of walls that came tumbling down and took rules down with them. Because first of all, this was a eunuch, one whose assigned gender at birth was male, 
but who had since been neutered, castrated, perhaps with his consent, perhaps not. It was, it turns out, a fairly common practice for the upper-level staff of royalty, for it was seen as a way to neutralize them as threats to the royalty, which was seen to be even more the case when the royal you were the staff of was female, which was the case in the Ethiopian's case. And right there in the Bible, right there in Deuteronomy, there's a rule. Somebody like that is unclean permanently. Therefore, they are offensive to God permanently. And therefore, they are not permitted to gather with or near other Jews, lest their offensive uncleanness makes others unclean and offensive too. So said the rules anyway. But Deacon Philip drew near to the eunuch and baptized him, welcoming him into the community the Son of God came to create. Not only that, but this eunuch, though a Jew, was also an Ethiopian, which is to say that in baptizing the eunuch, Philip is also reaching with the gospel and with the welcome of the kingdom of heaven beyond national borders, national borders which unfortunately too often enclose the kind of nationalism that defines the God of all as above all our God the God of us. Note to all. The Christian faith suffers. It wilts and withers and starves itself of its critical and radical essence when rather than staying connected to the vine, it crawls into bed beneath the sheets of nationalism. Now, don't misunderstand me. I mean, God bless America, land that I love, surely. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above, surely. It's a prayer I pray. But if my patriotism and my faith are on equal planes, if they are sleeping in the same bed, if my allegiance to God and country are equal things, then God is not God to me at all. For the God who is truly God is the God of all and desires to bless all and to bless them through those who are already richly blessed and not to limit the scope of blessing only to those who pledge allegiance to the same flag I do. For the Christian faith, when it is true to its roots, is a faith without borders. Which takes us to another off-scene wall. This eunuch, being Ethiopian, was black. Turns out, in other words, that the faith deacon Philip shared in the community he welcomed the eunuch into saw walls that were racial walls come tumbling down too. Which leads us to, directs us immediately into the text for today where the walls that came tumbling down were not only, once again, walls between people of different races and walls between people, citizens of different nations, but in this case, too, a wall that came tumbling down was the wall that was the tallest one of all known by Jews who called Jesus Lord, that wall being the wall between Jew and Gentile. 
the wall between people who called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob their God and people who didn't. And if they were male, the wall between those who were circumcised and those who weren't. If you read the book of Acts and Paul's letters too, you see that this wall proved to be the young church's hardest wall to dismantle. First of all, because there weren't just a few obscure biblical laws, there were all kinds of biblical laws to be cited to defend walls between Jew and Gentile. But also because, well, because you know what? As long as there have been religions, people have seen fit to see their faith as a summons to go to war with, with others far more often than they have seen it as a call to come together with others. Even when they say that the God they worship is the one and only God of all, of others. There are three primary characters in today's wall-crashing story. The first being a Jewish Christian, Peter. And the second being a non-Jewish, non-Christian, a Gentile, named Cornelius, who was a centurion in the Roman army of the Italian cohort and who lived in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Judea. It was a city filled with Romans. Cornelius, in other words, wasn't just a Gentile. He was really, really, really Gentile. But he was also, Luke says, a God-fearer. Which is to say that while he wasn't a Jew and wasn't seeking to become one, he respected the teachings of the Jews. Which takes us to the character that is the third character in this story, that being the God of the Jews and of all, who gave both Cornelius and Peter a way more expansive dream to be dreaming than the dreams they had been dreaming. In the case of Cornelius, the dream came in the form of an angel who told him that the prayers of his heart had been heard by God, even though Cornelius didn't didn't know God. But God apparently wanted to be known by Cornelius. And here's how it will happen, the angel said. There's a man called Peter, who's currently in the city of Joppa. Summon him, and your prayers to God will be answered. Cornelius doesn't yet know, but he will soon come to know. You can respect and fear and worship God as a member of any number of different religions. And in doing so, you can even know some things. You can know some true and good things about God. But there is no knowing God that is as complete and knowable as the God you come to know when you come to know Jesus. So Cornelius sent some devout soldiers from his ranks to Joppa to find Peter. It wasn't far. They arrived the next day. It was just down the coast. But interestingly, right before they arrived, Peter was praying, and while praying, he had a dream. And in his dream, he saw heaven opened, and he saw what Luke describes as something like a sheet. Maybe it was, I think, something like a tablecloth. Who knows? And and on it were being lowered down to earth, Animals, which Peter recognized them as as animals, which the Jewish food laws said weren't to be eaten because they were unclean and they would make you unclean. But then a voice from heaven said to Peter, eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, 
I've never in my whole life eaten anything that was profane or unclean. To which the voice said, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. There's a grammatical nuance here to note. The point is not that Peter should eat something unclean, but rather that God has the power to clean the unclean. Be the unclean a piece of meat or a person, a pork roast or a sinner, one of us or one of them. Long story short, immediately after his dream, one of them, them, actually three of them, Roman soldiers, found Peter and invited him to the Gentile Cornelius' Gentile house in the Gentile city of Caesarea. And Peter went. And when he got there, he went in, which was completely against the rules. Jews were taught in Scripture that to go in the house of an unclean person made you unclean. But Peter had been given a new dream to dream. Scripture or not, don't call unclean what God has and what God can and what God will make clean. Whether it's a piece of meat you've been told to avoid or a person you've been told to avoid. So Peter goes in and he tells Cornelius and his whole household about God made known to us in Christ Jesus, a God whom Peter says he, he just in this moment, he just now has come to realize isn't partial to any nation or people, but rather desires peace and life and forgiveness and salvation for all people. Which takes us to our reading for this from Acts for this Sunday in Easter. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers had come with Peter were astounded that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several more days. It's the only time in Luke or Acts, by the way, where Luke says that the Holy Spirit was given prior to baptism, as opposed to in baptism or immediately after baptism, apparently, it turns out, even God is willing to break with religious protocol for the sake of reaching farther than protocol would allow. And so in this case, protocol by God and by the church, that is to say by Peter, in this case, protocol is a wall that comes tumbling down takes some theology with it. Protocol, of course, has its place. And in its place is a very good thing, which is why it's important to note that Christ's church doesn't break down walls for the sake of just breaking down walls. Breaking down walls merely for the sake of breaking down walls isn't faith, it is anarchy. Anarchy are unfortunately demonstrated 
again this past year by anarchists to both my left and right whenever, whenever their purpose has been to destroy just because they can. Christians aren't called to break down walls merely for the sake of breaking down walls. Christians are called and led by the Spirit to break down walls for the sake of others and for the sake of enlarging a community which is truly a community of God for its M.O. is not anarchy, but love. Love for all, including those on the other side of my walls. And yours too. Amen.